kia ki roro itzi a haere. Please fill the traveller's tiny food basket. Enga iwi o te motu, no piki mai, no kake mai ki tene wahanga o te ahiahinei ko te ahika. Welcome back to Te Ahika here on Radio New Zealand National. I'm Justine Murray. Mariah Rakuraku will be back on the show next week. Kunga kaupapa e nei. Coming up, last year in September, the last original claimant of the Y262 claim, Sana Murray Nongati Kuri, died. Hear more about this queer and the history of the Y262 claim with Moana Jackson. I think. One of the important things that's often not known um, about the Y262 claim, um, which trips off people's tongues very easily uh, because it was so long-lasting and became so important, um, is is the fact that the original claimants were really very brave and and visionary people. Um, They each had, in their own way, a long history of working for our people. In our archival segment, Nga Taonga Kōrero, we're at the 150th commemorations of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1989 with the then Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court, Sir Eddie Taihakure Duri. The treaty is primarily about the protection of the Māori culture, no other, no other. It is about neither minorities or multiculturalism but it is about the social and political and cultural rights of the indigenous people. It is all to do with prior ownership. And later on in today's show, we'll hear Waiata from the album Tato Tato Ear 2. Koe ranga kaupapa kōrero mō tēnei wā. That's what's coming up in this edition of Te Ahika. Bōna sarin tu Te Ahika. Radio National. This week we heard the sad news that singer Mary Yandel, she made up one third of the group, the Yandel Sisters, died. Hailing from Samoa, the sisters were seen a lot in the 70s and 80s as backup singers to John Rolls, Billy T. James, Prince Tuiteka and the late Sir Howard Morrison. In 1974, recognising that the sisters had talent and were even likened to the group of that era from America, the Supremes, EMI offered the sisters a recording contract. That very same year, the sisters' hit song, Sweet Inspiration, stayed on the New Zealand charts for eight weeks and is still a crowd favourite. Trevor Maxwell was a part of the Kapahaka and show band era. He married Sir Howard Morrison's sister, the late Ataraita Maxwell. He shares his stories about the impact the Yandel sisters had in the New Zealand entertainment scene. Kia ora, Trevor. Kia ora, Kia ora. Now, um, even though the sisters hail from Samoa, they were part, I suppose, a real part of the Māori entertainment scene in the 70s and the, in the early 80s, such as Backup for Prince Tuiteka, Bunny Walters, Sir Howard Morrison. What can you tell me about the, the influence that the Yandel sisters uh, had in the Rotorua or New Zealand music scene? Mm. Well, firstly, um, my aroha goes out to the uh, Samoan Yandel family, and uh, I say Talofa, a sad, sad loss, of course. Um, I was fortunate to get to know Mary and her sisters uh, through their connection with 
backing Sir Howard Morrison on many occasions. And, of course, we were the Fano Kapaka cultural group that backed Howard on tours, on shows, uh, various things. And young Temuweta was a little, my nephew was a little boy growing up, him, him and young Howie Jr. And, um, and we used to spend lots of times in rehearsals and... Um, and, and whānau occasions with uh, the Yentl sisters. And um, what a beautiful, beautiful group of people. And, and it was like whānau whether they were Samoan, we Māori. We sort of uh, cherished the same family values. And, um, and they were so, so humble. I mean, they knew that Howard had four sisters who also sang like them, but the sisters just, admired the Yendal sisters because of their professionalism, their beautiful sound anyway. And uh and and there was no sort of um ego trips by anybody. Uh, sometimes the the sisters would back their brother and most times it was the Yendal sisters. And especially when Howard was doing um any recordings in studios and everything. Um the Yandles were brought in, and um, but they were, and I do recall when they were all down here for Ta Howard's uh, Tangihanga at Tamatekapua uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so there was a strong bond, and um, yep, and uh, they were really, really pleasant with it. They, of course, they were involved in terms of backing singers um, for Sir Howard Morrison. But how did, did they play a lot in, in Rotorua itself? Um, no, I, I think they, well, they lived in Auckland, grew up in Auckland, and and even on, on one occasion, I remember we were over at the South Pacific Festival in Samoa in 1998, around that time, and they were over there in their own home country backing, and uh, we were doing cultural shows along with all the other island groups and that, and so they were loved back in their own country, but they were also equally loved here in New Zealand. But I think they spent a lot more time around Auckland. I guess that's where the population is, and that's where more of the opportunities and also the infrastructure for the field that they were in, in the entertainment field, studios, recordings, television. It was based mainly in Auckland. Now, I've done a little bit of, well, I've researched uh, the Yandel sisters, and it it appears to me that during the 70s and 80s, no one could really touch them, their melodies and their harmonies. I mean, you yourself, Trevor, with a strong kapahaka background, and obviously you've got to get melodies and harmonies right. They were fantastic at their their singing. They were great. Oh, they definitely were. And I think there was another sister. There were about four of them, but three mainly could go on the road. I guess the older one I think it's uh, Caroline. raising children and, and things mm-hmm. like that, but she occasionally joined them. But you're right, they, their harmonies were just superb. But they were also good with one another. Sometimes, you know, you, uh, you get sibling things happening with... Uh, it happens in Kapaka, it happens with us, and, but the love is there, but everyone's trying to give it their best, and sometimes it comes out the wrong way. But not with them. They were just so, so wonderful with it. No, Howard, Howard treated them like his own sisters, and uh, so did we. Looked upon them as, as whānau. 
So in terms of um, their, their, their music, we, they, they had a, a, for eight weeks back in 1974, their popular yeah. track, Sweet Inspiration, went to the number one spot. Is there a favourite song that you have, Trevor? Oh, you just said it's Sweet Inspiration. It's, um, yeah, we love to sing that along with them, uh, you know, too. And uh, it stood the test of time even when I caught it the other night. It, it's just that they can reach all those notes. They blend in so well together. But, you know, the other thing in, uh, that they had was um, contrast. They had um, uh, talent across the field. They could do all those uh, sort of army sort of songs, Boogie Woogie, Beagle Boy from Company Beef, and, you know, and the variety. Then they could also sing their Samoan songs. They could sing Maori songs as good as us. Well, they are Maori. <laughs> um, how how much do you think the New Zealand music scene? Even though I mean, I saw the the sisters perform. I think it was at uh, um, a F- Style Pacifica fashion show. They made the odd appearance. Mm. Mm. How do you think the New Zealand uh, music scene will be lessened or weakened? Well, with the loss of Mary Yandel this this week, it's always a sad time when we lose uh, people of. Um and you mentioned it earlier, uh, Tuiteka, Billy T, and Sir Howard. Look, they they could blend in with any of those entertainers and, and support and sing. Um, and, and, and a variety in, in many, many ways. And uh, they worked hard on their rehearsals too to, to ensure that they got the right um, ambience for, for, for the audience, whether it was live or whether it was a TV show. But, um, oh, yeah, they, um, uh, whilst they might have backed a lot of people in that, uh, they also had a show in, in their own right uh, that was, um, uh, you know, enjoyed by all going along to see them. Kaitsuatsukitira, Trevor Maxwell, thank you so much for your time. Ah, uh, thank you. Kia ora, talofa. Tomorrow it's Waitangi Day and will mark the 172nd year since the signing of the treaty. This year we'll see the continuation of negotiations between Māori and the Crown to their treaty claims and one such iwi is Ngāti Kahunganu, who last year organised a number of wānanga for its uri, or descendants, held in the Wairarapa, Papawai Marae in Greytown. Informing its people about the Y262 claim was the co-papa of the day. Y262 is also known as the Flora and Fauna claim and was lodged by Sana Murray of Ngātikuri, Hema Witana of Te Rarawa, Te Witi McMath of Ngāti Wai, Tamapuata of Ngāti Porau, Kataraina Rime of Ngāti Kahunganu and John Hippolyte of Ngāti Kuata. The claim was lodged in October of 1991 and raised issues and concerns about Matauranga Māori or traditional knowledge and culture and government policies and practices. That was the main gist of the Y262 claim. Moana Jackson provided a bit more detail when I attended one of the Y262 Wānanga in Greytown, Wairarapa. Oh, e rua aku maunga, e papa ko hikurangi te maunga, ko waiaputaua ko Ngāti Protiwi. Ita taho taku faya ko kahurana kita maunga, uh, ko ngati poporo te hapu, uh, ko ngati kahunganu tiwi. Kia ora moana. I was thinking about 
the cordial that you delivered, the Y262 cordial about that particular claim, and I was thinking, if the Y262 could be the name of a movie, its superstars would be the original claimants. I, I, I think one of the important things that, that's often not known um, about the Y262 claim, um, which trips off people's tongues very easily uh, because it was so long-lasting and became so important, um, is, is the fact that the original claimants were really very brave and, and visionary people. Um, they each had, in their own way, a long history of working for our people um, in, in issues ranging from helping organise the Māori Land March in 1972 to attempts to protect our land, to fight in the early days to ensure the treaty was being acknowledged and so on. And so they had a long history of commitment to our people and when they saw a need to seek some protection for our taonga and the, the knowledge involved in mātauranga Māori and so on, and they came together to lay what became Y262, um, they showed their, their visionary status really because that claim was the first which involved more than one iwi because they were six people from six different iwi and they were claiming not just a particular piece of land in one area or a river in one area but rather they were claiming protection and the right to look after everything to do with our knowledge, our understanding of the world, and so on. And for me, though, those original claimants, um, Sana Murray, Del Wihungi, um, Witty McMath, John Hippolyte, and Tamapuata, um, are really heroic people because they were brave enough to see that this claim had to be heard, it had to be heard across iwi because the issues it wanted to address affected all of our people and brave because they knew that they were going to be challenging at a very fundamental level really um, some of the authority that the Crown has claimed in regard to our knowledge, our, our treasures, um, the trees in our forests and so on. So, so I have not just very warm memories, but very high regard for, for those people. I mean, I love the way that you spoke about each of concerns, yeah, I was thinking of the word amuamu, which is concerns, about each particular na na rongoa Māori. We talked about sana and her um, affinity with harakeke and Dalwi Hongi with that lovely story about how her father had all these varieties of kumara. One of the interesting and I think inspiring things about the claimants was that they came to the same point of deciding to lay the claim because of their shared friendship really but also because they each had quite specific interests and concerns so Sana um, Murray was, was not only a, a poet a writer um, what some people would call an activist um, she was also a weaver and was really knowledgeable about harakeke but was concerned that the Department of Conservation for example was just blocking off 
large areas of land, so access was made more difficult to Harakeke. Um, she was worried about the fate of the pupu Harakeke, the little snail that lives in certain species of flax, because that was the kaitiaki for her people. And at the time, um, some species of flax were endangered by a, a blight or disease. And so she began to think, what can we do to help protect the Harakeke and what can we do to ensure that we retain as Māori the right to access it, to use it, to look after it and so on. Meanwhile, Del Wihungi, who is also from Te Taitukero, um, was a gardener and she could remember as a child um, her whānau planting numerous species of kumara but by the time she grew to adulthood there only seemed to be one and that was the one we all know with the bright purple skin and so on and so she began to wonder well what's happened to all those other species and she discovered that they had actually been sent to Japan and she just felt that no one had the right to to do that that they were kumara were part of our whakapapa and so she got concerned about the fate of the kumara and the concerns of Dell and Sana were also heightened at that time because the government had just passed the 1987 Plant Variety Rights Act which allowed for the granting of plant variety rights which are sort of like a patent over species of, of native trees and they began to ask well how come the Crown thinks it can do that? Those trees belong to Tania and a part of our whakapapa. So they came together with a couple of quite specific concerns. Um, then a friend of theirs who had been involved in a lot of the protest activity, um, John Hippolyte from Atikoata at the top of the South Island, um, was worried about the tuatara because that was the kaitiaki of Natikoata. Um, it was being endangered, um, governments were taking the tuatara off Duval Island and so he began to get really concerned about that. Uh, Witi McMath was from Ngāti Wai and Ngāti Wai as the name suggests are a coastal iwi and he began to get really concerned about water, what was happening with pollution and so on. And then Tamapuata who was an artist and a filmmaker of course was really uh, concerned about our art, what was happening to the misuse of our moko, the misuse of haka and so on. And so those sort of disparate ideas and concerns came together in the decision that perhaps we should lay a claim to seek authority and recognition again in relation to those things. The 1987 Plant Variety Rights Act officially gave permission for someone from Sweden or Japan as you mentioned earlier to patent a plant. You mentioned cough medicine in your kōrero ne. The Plant Variety Rights Act I think is one of those quiet laws that sort of slipped in under the radar. How did you um, find out about it? You told a story um, about... Well, we, we found out about it um, the... quite by chance. There, there's a um, parliamentary gazette which lists the, the laws that are going through Parliament and we were just flicking through it one day and saw this Plant Variety Rights Act and saw that it allowed for a right to be granted equivalent to ownership really 
of species of, of plants and we began to ask as the claimants were in their particular areas how can this happen who, who said the crown can do that and then a friend from overseas in the United States heard about it as well and faxed us to ask if we had heard about it and we put in a submission from the Māori Legal Service at that time um, but the act was supported by nursery companies, drug companies and so on who could see if they could have a PVR or plant variety right in, in relation to a particular species they, they would own it and be able to make profit out of it and so on so that also uh, rang alarm bells for the claimants and become another became another reason why uh, they approached us to see about drafting a claim. The claim itself um, was put together after a lot of corridor um, because we realised that we would need to talk to scientists um, what, what what's happening with plants and what are new species and how are they made and all that stuff and we were really lucky um, that Murray Parsons who is from Kahungunu and was at the time and may still have been only the only Māori ethnobotanist um, and he was really helpful as was a very good Parker friend of his, um, Oliver Sutherland, who was also a scientist. And so a lot of research had to be done, but the first claim was finally laid in 1989. Um, we were worried that whether the tribunal would accept the claim because it did involve six different iwi um, rather than just one. Um, so that was the first issue that we, we had to address. Um, and then once the claim was laid we had to wait for a hearing date and all the usual things. Um, the hearings finally got underway and then the presiding judge, um, Judge Richard Kearney, died. Um, so that led to a further delay um, until Judge Joe Williams was appointed to chair the tribunal in 93. And what happened in this time of course was that more and more plant variety rights were being granted over different species of plants. Um, a whole lot of other issues were beginning to surface like problems around genetic engineering and our people's concerns about what, what that meant for whakapapa and so on. Um, it took a while after Judge Williams's appointment for the tribunal to be reconvened and so on. Um, so it wasn't until the mid to late 90s that the hearings in full started. And they took several years because the tribunal had to go to each of the six different rohe, um, hear the hearings over a number of days and so on. So the actual hearing process took some time simply because of the number of claimants and the complexity of, of the issues. Um, but there was some really brilliant evidence given in the claim by our people. Um, a number of overseas experts came to give evidence on behalf of the claimants, um, people like Daryl Posey who is an English um, scientist who had spent a lot of time working with the uh, Indian people in the Amazon basin in Brazil and was probably one of the first to argue for the protection of indigenous rights and their own plants and the medicines attached to the plants and so on. So we were very lucky in, in the people who um, we were prepared to commit to the claim. We had a big um, 
dedicated team, I think, of lawyers and others. And the hearings finally finished in 2003. And then we took some time to wait for the um, report to be published. A section of it was released first on the reo, um, because the government had set up a Māori language task force, so the tribunal thought it was appropriate to release that section first, because part of the claim was the protection of the language as a taonga. And then the final report was released in July of this year. The report, Kuaupiaroa Tēnei, or This is New Zealand, is a name. It's the government's response, really, to the Y262 claim and was released only last year on July 2nd, 20 years after the Y262 claim was originally lodged. There are two parts to the report, Te Taumata Tuatahi and Te Taumata Tuarua, and explores the work of Crown agencies and government departments and their roles within Māori cultural identity, intellectual property, the Māori language, the environment and kaitiakitanga or guardianship. Moana Jackson continues. The report was, was released under the name Kaotero Tene uh, because the tribunal took the view that it was the first report in the sort of what they called really the post-grievance phase and therefore decisions had to be made in the light of the fact that we are all New Zealanders. Um, so it was a quite new and different approach by the tribunal, um, one which I personally think is, is flawed um, because it presumes that the Crown will suddenly miraculously stop bre- breaching the treaty um, when, when there were ongoing grievances yet, yet to be addressed. Um, but it did, it did take a while and it, it is a quite unique beautifully presented report um, in which there are some recommendations which I am sure our people will try to use to the best advantage to protect our taonga Um, but the overall thrust of the report I think unfortunately um, would have disappointed the claimants because the great tragedy of the claim is that all of the claimants except Sana Murray had died by the time the report was published and sadly Sana herself died two months after the report. So the, the report Kuaotearoa Tēnei lacks kiko, substance, I, I, in your I, I, I think it, it, it begins from a point of view where any ability to recognise the fullness of the authority of Rangatiratanga is immediately put at jeopardy because they make it very clear that their starting point is that the Crown won an absolute right to govern in the treaty. And I was fascinated by that use of the word won the right because it seems to turn the treaty into a lottery and yeah, I didn't realise our that. people had played lotto in 1840. But once you start with the idea that the, the Crown won a right of absolute authority, then that necessarily implies that Māori must have lost something and so all of the recommendations are predicated on a lesser status for whatever rights Māori might be deemed to have in relation to taonga, to flora and fauna and so on. So Sana Murray and the rest of the um, the claimants started this in 1987. July the report Kualtearoa Tēnei was released. That was the recommendations um, by the Crown, how 
how did Sana Murray, when she was with us, take the the news of the report? Well, I think I think she was delighted that at last mm. there was a report, and that the the hard work of her friends really um, yeah. at last had come to some fruition. Uh, but I know that that she was also deeply disappointed um, at the content of much of the report. Um, one of her initial comments to me after the release was that we should reject this um, because it came, in her view, um, from such a a position contrary to what they had originally claimed. And for her, one of the simple issues was that if the catalyst, one of the catalysts for the claim was the passage of the 1987 Plant Variety Rights Act, then at the very least there should have been a moratorium on the operation of the Act, a temporary stop put to the operation of the Act, so that there could perhaps be a new process put in place which more guaranteed the protection of, of our people's rights in relation to particularly, say, Urungoa plants and so on. And we were hopeful that the tribunal would at least recommend that, but they chose not to. Um, and what they recommended instead in that regard was that the Plant Variety Rights Office, which grants those Plant Variety Rights Act, uh, should have a Māori advisory committee. And our people's experience, of course, shows that you can have a Māori advisory committee give advice, but then more often than not, that advice is ignored. So I think if one measures some of the key findings and certainly the starting point of the tribunal report against the original aspirations of the claimants, then I think one can only be sadly disappointed. In the Wananga this morning that you delivered, Moana, you spoke about that and you had it on the whiteboard, um, the statement that we just spoke about, the Crown won the absolute right. Under that you had the word rangatiratanga, under that you had kaitiakitanga, and then you had taonga, and the other word was taonga works. Is that your overall explanation of that report called the Aruatene, and how does that how does that work? Well, if you begin a treaty analysis with the presumption that the Crown somehow has absolute authority, which is a consistent Crown view, of course, then even if you recognise Arangateratanga, it is necessarily a lesser recognition. It is subject to the absolute authority. And so if you regard Arangateratanga as somehow lesser than the authority that the Crown claims, then kaitiakitanga, which is an authority derived from rangatiratanga, is necessarily of lesser importance too. And so even when in, in some places in the report the, the Crown says that in some very limited cases Māori may have absolute kaitiakitanga, absolute right to protect a taonga, um, that is in the end still subject to um, the overriding authority of the Crown. And that is, I believe, inherently problematic. Um, but once it had started from that point, if you like, every recommendation and every analysis the tribunal entered into is then framed within that superior-inferior 
dichotomy of, of authority. And so when it goes to look at taonga and what it called taonga works, and taonga works are those taonga which, if you like, are derived from a particular traditional taonga, but not necessarily the taonga itself, um, like, say, a, a new representation of an old muko pattern or something. Um, and you say that Māori can have kaitiakitanga in relation to one taonga, um, but that authority is in turn limited by the crown, then you restrict the ability of Māori to protect things. And when you split it up into a sort of new discrete category called taonga works, then I think you also inevitably limit um, both the ability of our people to guarantee the protection and sense of authority in relation to those things and subordinate and subordinate that to some sort of abstract uh, representation of what a taonga can be and, and I think that is inherently problematic as well. And just to give a, um, uh, an explanation of that, you spoke today about um, the whare that we were in today at Papawai Marae, that's a taonga, but if you take a picture and you paint that whare, that is your definition of a taonga work. Well, one way I've tried to explain the difference, and, and it's an analogy, so it's yeah, not an entirely accurate, um, but say a meeting house might be regarded as a taonga because it it has been built from and grown, if you like, on the land to which the people belong. It's filled with the stories and traditions of those people, and so clearly it is something to be treasured. It, it is a taonga. But if that was to be used, say a picture of that marae was to be used in some other artistic representation, um, incorporated into something else, then that could potentially be classed as a taonga works, that is, it had become something different, um, so that the new form would dictate its status. And it may well be that the new form has nothing to do with our tikanga or our authority, which further renders it um, less able to be protected. Can you pick out what you what is not favourable for Māori in this report, Kualtearo Tenei? I think it's important to to, to stress again that, that that I think there are some good recommendations in the report, which I'm sure our people will use. Um, I think, for example the recognition in effect at long last that rungoa uh, is a valid medicinal practice, um, is a timely and long overdue acknowledgement um, and there are a number of other things that, that, that I think our people can take and say yes we can use this, we, we, we can take this as, as a further recognition of, of of our view of things and, and so on. Um, but because the report in general is based on that notion of a overweening or overarching Crown authority, then it does necessarily limit whatever recommendations it could make. And so I know that, that some people are looking at what is called a judicial review, 
that is taking the tribunal to a, a higher court um, where the court can review its processes and decide whether it acted say in breach of natural justice or something um, but other people are looking at other ways um, which might say for example well we will use this this and this recommendation and try to find a way to work with other agencies based on that but we reject the basic starting point of the report um, that reduces rangatiratanga to that subordinate authority so I think there will be different responses and part of the reason Kahunganu is holding this series of wānanga is just so our people can first of all become familiar with the history of the, of the claim be familiar with what the claim uh, report actually says and then work out, as the other iwi claimants are doing, what the kahunganu response will be. To listen to his kōrero and back to today's show, head to our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. And if you look to the left column of the page, you'll also find our archive where you can listen to previous teahika episodes. I'm Justine Murray and this is Teahika. Tomorrow, thousands are set to descend upon Waitangi grounds for the commemorations. In our next segment, we're back in 1989 at Waitangi grounds with the then Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court and Chairman of the Waitangi Tribunal, Sir Eri Taihakure Dury. I wish to speak primarily not in those capacities, but simply as a Māori to talk about what the treaty means for me personally. I have no brief to say what the treaty means for all Māori, but what it means for me personally and how we might celebrate the treaty, especially now as we move to its 150th anniversary in 1990. 1990, in my view, must surely be the year of the treaty, and it is necessary to say that, because when Hobson left here, he moved a little south, and he established Auckland at the invitation of Apihai Tekawo. And so it is also the... 150th year of Auckland. And even while that was happening, settlers were coming into Wellington, so it's the 150th anniversary of Wellington. And if we go back 100 years ago, we can see that many things were happening in our nation at the time. The welfare state was getting started. The union movement was taking a new direction. There were a number of developments at that time. So that 1990 will be shared with many things. But let us as Māori not forget that there would have been no Auckland, no Wellington, no welfare state, no union movement, but for Waitangi. It must come first. The treaty is the foundation of our modern state. And our natural modesty as Māori 
should not prevent us from insisting that in 1990 the spotlight should fall upon us, the Māori. Waitangi is not a symbol of the rights of minorities. Minorities' rights are very important and I support them. But when the treaty was signed, we were not a minority. It is not a celebration of the many cultures of New Zealand. I rejoice in the multicultural character of our country. We all do. We are so much part of Mili Sohoi's people in the north that we have no other option. But the treaty is primarily about the protection of the Māori culture, no other, no other. It is about neither minorities or multiculturalism, but it is about the social and political and cultural rights of the indigenous people. It has all to do with prior ownership. And the treaty recognises that, that we as Māori were not found. Abel Tasman or Captain Cook didn't find us. We were never aware that we were lost. We don't need to be found. And nor is the treaty about privilege. It is no privilege to keep one's properties. That's a right. The treaty is about just rights and properties. And those are the words of the treaty. The only privilege was that of settlement. The treaty is about the most basic principles of justice and law, as we heard during the interdenominational service earlier on. And we must be careful not to consider that the treaty locks us into some dim, dark facet of our history. Justice can never be outmoded. The treaty is no more part of an irrelevant past than the Ten Commandments, the New Testament, the Hippocratic Oath, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Only last year, 148 years after the treaty, a working group of the United Nations prepared a draft declaration on indigenous people's rights that was no more than a restatement of our Treaty of Waitangi. The principles of the treaty then are not diminished by time. Rather, it takes time to perfect them. But then we must also not forget that the treaty is not just a Bill of Rights for Māori. It is a Bill of Rights for Pākehā. archival recording there of Sir Eddie Taihakure Diri from 1989 at Waitangi Grounds who was at the time Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court from 1980 to 1998 and the Chairman of the Waitangi Tribunal from 1980 to 2004. If you'd like to hear the corridor again head to our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika and to get your weekly updates click like on our Facebook page. 
As you've heard in today's show, it's all about tangata whenua. We heard in Moana Jackson's Kōrero just how staunch really the original six claimants were in protecting the rights of us, the tangata whenua, which is the theme of our next guest's art, realistic, large canvases of tangata whenua, people of the land. Rongo tangatake tsuhura. Tuhura, uh, born in Gisborne, New Zealand in 1971, and uh, well, that's Kuera um, But I'm here at Māori Market, Wellington, um, sitting at his little kokonga. Kia ora rongo. Kia ora. Um, my, my dad's from uh, Ruatoria, Jeru, Hiruharama, and mum's from Waipiro Bay, Toasty, hard. Coasty, coasty, hard. So rongo, I mean, um, behind you, we're sitting... Um, uh, in your little partitioned area is your art, and the first thing I'm seeing is pepe and a queer. What's the theme? Is that the theme of your art? The theme is uh, tangata whenua, but people I've, I've kind of uh, met in my life um, and approached, I found them interesting and um, asked them if, if they would uh, pose for me, pretty much. <laughs> so these are from life, are from drawn from people, not from photos or... Oh yes, from photos, sorry. Oh, from um, photos. Pose for a photo, yes, yeah, sorry. So can you talk talk, talk to me about them? Who who are the peepee and the, and the queer? Like, I don't really um, ask names and, and stuff like that. Yeah, And then I take the art that I do derive from this photograph and make it my own, kind of um, uh, putting elements of Māori in them and, um, well, they are Māori but, you know, are you using airbrushing? You know, the mm. graph artists yes. use? Yep, yep. I sketch them out uh, with an airbrush and um, colour them in and, yeah, hone them out all with an airbrush. <laughs> yeah. They are, I mean, the detail is amazing. How yeah. long have you been drawing, graphing? Uh, I started drawing when I was three years old, but picked up the airbrush about um, four years ago. And... Um, Kind of because I've been drawing so long, I found the airbrush like, uh, like like from my experience with with a, with um, pencils and pens, just really similar. So it was a trans the transition was quite smooth. Yeah, it took a week to pick up the airbrush. Yeah. Did you go to art school? My brothers uh, went to art school when I was their age, and they brought home a lot of um, Da Vinci books, a lot of Renaissance art like um, Michelangelo. Albrecht Durer, stuff like that. And I was looking through that stuff at that age and and they had a like a chest at the bottom of the bed full <laughs> yeah. of comics. Full of comics, yeah. comic books, yeah. Marvel comic books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, loved the stories in those and, and the, like later on in life when I was 27, that transition as well. Um, same, same kind of stories um, of, of uh, our, our uh, tipuna heroes, you know. Um, it was an easy transition as well because of that. Um, yeah, just love the stories of our people. It's mean, they're mean. Yeah. You've told us how you, how you do it, but how would yeah. you describe it? Yeah, because you've got some really detailed stuff, and then there's mm. this beautiful, huge. Is it by a meter? How how big are the your? Four feet by four feet. Four feet by four feet. Yeah. And then it ranges. So I mean, how is it? Is there a common theme that you have running through your art? I would say tangata whenua or people. Or, yeah, yeah. There's just that connection, something that we can all identify with, you know, that con- connection. Yeah, that's that's how I would describe my work about people. So in 2008, Rongo, you were a recent graduate of uh, Te, te Toi o Ngā Rangi, 
Bachelor of Māori Visual Arts program yep. run by Toi Hokura, Aye. the very renowned Toi Hokura. What Aye. was that experience? So that was only very re- three years ago. Yeah. Yep. Very recent. Oh, that was great. That's where I picked up airbrushing, so yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> Did you work with Sandy? Is it, was it Sandy Adset? Oh, no, he wasn't there um, when, oh. I was, when I studied there, no. Um, and uh, in my last year, I think Derek had just come back from getting his master's. So oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, I dabbled in a little of moko. I did my one and only tamoko. Yeah. And that wasn't for you? Oh, <laughs> just a different feeling. Eh? You're used to that resistance on a table um, drawing. Uh, floating over skin is just uncanny. And um, mm. the way they wince, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can feel their pain. Yeah. How do you think Māori Market helps our upcoming and established Māori artists? Oh, it's a great way to um, get out there, get out of your garage um, and meet other artists and um, meet people that you you haven't seen for ages too, you know, and uh, see how they're doing. Yeah, because I've met a few people that I went to Toyho with and their cool. work has come so far. All yeah, right. It's really, really exciting to see. Yeah. Awesome. Choice. Um, rongo uh, tuhura. Kia ora. Kia ora. That was from the recent Māori Market. We've posted up some links on our webpage right now. Go there to see some of Rongo's art. Te atahua huki o ngā whakahua. They're pretty amazing. Anaira a Trevor Maxwell, who we heard at the start of the show with this week's Whakatauki. Kia ki. Please fill up the traveller's tiny food basket. This whakatauki for me, it, I think it uh, shows the ahi and the embracing, the help that each other gives. That's Te Ahika for another week. Now, if you're up early in the morning for Waitangi celebrations in your region, or even if you're travelling to Waitangi, travel safe. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. A tui tērā ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu. Mauri ora.